Jesus made bold claims, and the people of his time were trying to figure out who he really was. His claims left them confused and sometimes angry. Through his powerful I am statements, Jesus invites us to gain a fresh perspective and a deeper understanding of who he truly is. Each statement gradually reveals the divinity and character of Jesus. As we piece them together, we see how knowing him changes everything. We know who he is because he said, I am. It's good to have you here today. Uh, some of you notice I'm wearing this t-shirt that I wore last week. I wasn't going to wear it throughout this series, and I won't, but last week Pastor Brian said he thought I had to wear it again, so I'm doing this for Pastor Brian because that's the kind of guy I am. What's interesting is, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, last night um, at our Saturday night service, people were commenting about, oh, good, you're wearing the t-shirt. What's interesting is this morning, you know what you've been saying as, as you've been coming in? Oh, you're wearing that shirt again. And what else is also very interesting is I can tell those of you who were not here last week, you're like, well, that's a different shirt. <laughs> Just kind of threw yourself under those. Anyway, I'm wearing this shirt, and we started this series last week, and, and you may remember, if you were here, that I talked about the French philosopher René Descartes in that now famous phrase, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And what was interesting is there was a gentleman here last weekend for the very first time, and after the service, he, he uh, met me in the comments and says, uh, Pastor Bob, I, I just want to say, I was so impressed that you actually brought philosophy and classical thinking into your sermon and, and brought in some of the intellectual approach that way with, with uh, Rene Descartes. And I said, well, well, great. I'm glad that that connected with you. He left, and immediately, and I kid you not, immediately another man came up to me, and he said to me, Bob... I was born and raised in Whatcom County. This French philosophy stuff doesn't work for me. Give me something I can understand. <laughs> so for you, and you know who you are, I have another philosopher for you today. His name is Dr. Seuss. <laughs> kind of try to hit on your level so you can grab this. You may remember from Green Eggs and Ham, it starts off, I am Sam, Sam I am. And the response is, I do not like that Sam I am, but do you like Green Eggs and Ham? There you have that. Now, Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and he didn't say, Sam, I am, but he did ask this question, who do people say I am? And then he turns it on them, and he gets real personal. He says, more importantly, who do you say I am? It doesn't matter what other, but who do you say that I am? And where we landed was that there's an even more significant and important question, and that is, who does Jesus say that he is? And that's what's most important. We started off last week looking in John chapter 8, where Jesus gives this little Greek phrase, ego imi, which simply means, I am. R.C. Sproul talks about how that ego imi is actually redundant because the Greek word ego could be translated I or I am, and imi, the Greek word, could be translated I or I am. So in essence, it's saying I am, I am. So if Dr. Seuss were writing the gospel and got to Jesus, he might say it this way, I am, I am, I am, I am. There you have that. I am, I am, I am, I am. 
And we know, as we saw last week, that that comes from Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is speaking to God, or God is speaking to Moses out of this burning bush that's not consumed. And he says, what is your name? Who shall I say sent me? And God uses that powerful phrase, I am. I am. This I am is that, that I am uncreated. I am eternal. I am all-knowing. I am infinite. And what we've seen here as we looked at last week is the aseity of God, that, that his very essence of his existence is within himself, that he is without deficiency, he is without need, he is without contingency on anyone or anything else. He just is. And the beautiful thing about that is that if God is I am, then the rest of us are I am not. I referenced the book that I read on vacation by Louis Giglio, I am not, but I know I am. And that's the whole concept. The premise of this is to recognize I'm not in the center of my world. I'm not in control of all things. I'm not the creator, but I know I am. I know the one who is at the center. I want to know the one who is in control. And when we grasp that, we begin to understand that he invites us to be a part of his story. That God is not just some accessory that we can include into our story. We can just get a little blessing in our story, but to recognize that he has a grand narrative that's been going on and he invites us to be a part of his story. And while he does not need us, I am is a friend of sinners. And that he would choose us and pursue us and include us and invite us to know him. And so in this series, we're looking at what does Jesus say about who he is, how we can know him. And we're looking primarily out of the book of John of these seven I am pronouncements that Jesus makes, where he will use this, this Greek phrase, ego ami, and then he will qualify. Last week, we looked at just the ego ami, I am. It's, it's who he is, but now he gives these seven qualifiers of, of what he is, what he is like. And the beauty about the phrase I am and this, this existence, this eternal, infinite existence, is, is that we know that God is this a big theological word, immutable, unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever, who was and is and is to come. And my mom attends online on Saturday nights. And last week after the service uh, in, the, in the week, she sent me a, a clip from one of her devotionals that she was reading. And it just, she said, I thought this went well with your sermon from last week. It says, when we live in the past, life is hard. When we live with our mistakes, when we live with our regrets, it's hard because God isn't in our past. He doesn't say I was. And when we live in the future with our fears and our uncertainty and not knowing and all the anxieties that we talk about, it's difficult because God doesn't say, I will be. But now he invites us into this re present reality. I am. That God is. And so Jesus says, I am. I am here. I am present. I, it's the, the isness of God. The eternal now. He just is. He transcends time. And he is with us in this moment. He invites us in this moment to know him in this moment. And so we'll look at these different things in, in John and one out of Revelation. And in fact, this week as I was studying, I actually may add a week to this series. This is not uncommon for me. As I was studying, thinking, oh, we can do that one on Labor Day weekend. So we may go into September with this. We will see. As I say that, 
pretty much guarantee it, we will. But we're going to look at these seven statements that Jesus makes that John records where he says, I am, I'm the gate, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the light of the world, I'm the vine, I'm the way, the truth, I'm the resurrection. And today we're going to look at the very first one of these. And as he begins to explain the what of the I am, we get, begin to see that for, for whatever you need, I am. For everything you need, I am. Everything that we would have a need for, Jesus says, I am. So today, we're going to look in John uh, chapter 6, and we're going to look at this first one. If you have your Bible or your tablet, you want to turn there. Uh, we will, as I said, we'll be in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is a really uh, quite incredible uh, chapter. It's a long chapter. We're not going to even come close to scratching the surface, even of the, the little section we're going to focus on. But in this chapter, there's an interesting thing that happens with Jesus and his popularity. At the beginning of the chapter, you see this meteoric rise of popularity to where Jesus is at the apex of his popularity. There's thousands of people that are traveling far to see him. In fact, it says they are wanting to make him king by force. They're trying to force him into the office and the authority of kingship. But by the end of chapter six, what has been the apex of his popularity now becomes the nadir of his popularity, that it says that at this point, many of his disciples began to leave him. And in fact, he begins for the first time saying that there is one of his 12 that will betray him. So he goes from this peak down to the very valley of his popularity. In the midst of all this, the sandwich between these two things, this, this kind of piece of bread of his great popularity and the piece of bread of, of people leaving him, there's this teaching that we're going to look at. And the reason that he teaches is because people are trying to make him the king by force and the reasons and their motives behind that. So he gives them this teaching. And because of what he says in this teaching, they pendulum swing and many of them follow him no longer. One other thing about John chapter 6, two other things actually. One of them is that this happens about one year before he is crucified. So he's two-thirds of the way through his earthly ministry. And what this teaching that we're going to look at, it takes place in what is, I would say, my favorite spot in all of Israel. Been to Israel 10 times or better. And there is a spot that is, and I can give you all kinds of reasons why this is so significant to me. But it's the synagogue in Capernaum. And this is where he gives this teaching. Now, with that, as I said, there's so much to cover. Let me summarize the first uh, 26 verses of John chapter 6. It starts off that there are thousands of people coming to hear him talk. As, as I said, his popularity is rising. And it gets to the end of the day, and they're hungry. And so Jesus, you're, many of you are familiar with this, feeds the 5,000 with five little barley loaves and two little fish, 5,000 men, it says, so there's women and children. It may have been, who knows, 20,000 people or so. But he feeds them with this little Lunchable and makes it all you can eat for thousands. It's an incredible thing. And they're amazed by this, so much so that they, they say, surely, after this, this sign that they've seen, surely this must be the prophet that was to come. Not a prophet, the prophet. We'll come back to that later. Surely this must be the prophet that was to come. And then they know, then Jesus knowing they were going to try to make him king by force, Jesus says, hey, um, I'll be right back. And then he leaves so that they are not, you know, going to force him to, into kind of any kingship or whatever. And he goes off into the mountains to pray. 
Well, that night, his disciples get in the boat. It's night. The sun's already gone down. And they begin to row back home, back to Capernaum, back to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It's about three and a half miles out there, and there's a wind. And we looked at this briefly last week. In the midst of this storm, Jesus decides to catch up with them. The shortcut, instead of walking around the lake, he walks across the lake. And as they see him with all that's going on, they're terrified. This is what we looked at last week. He says to them, ego ami, I am. Do not be afraid. And we looked at that. It's not just a familiarity. Hey, it's just me. Don't worry about it. There's that. But there's this, I am the almighty God. You don't have to be afraid. And then they find themselves in Capernaum. And the people come to him. They find out that Jesus has gone back to the north. And so they come to Capernaum. And there's this little subtle little miracle that's referenced but not expounded upon. All the people are like, how'd you get here so fast? And then they just go on. And Jesus sees all of these people and he knows why they're there. And he begins to speak to them. And this is where we're going to pick up. Now he finds himself in the synagogue in Capernaum. There's not 5,000 or 20,000 people. The synagogue could not seat that many. But probably all the leadership is there. And Jesus begins to teach them. Now, if you have your Bibles or your tablets or whatever open, John chapter 6, we'll start off in verse 27. That's all that's led up to this. And today we're going to look at a lot of scriptures. So I hope you're ready for that. It's so, so good, the word of God. 627, Jesus says to them, do not work for food that spoils. Remember, they, they've had that whole feeding of the 5,000. They're wanting some more of that. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, there's that title again, which the Son of Man will give you. He's saying, I know why you're here. You want another happy meal. You want another handout. You want another free meal. You want to see a miracle, some wonder bread kind of thing to happen here. And he tries to turn them from the things that are physical to the things that are spiritual. And then he uses that messianic title that we looked at last week, the son of man out of Daniel chapter seven, the son of man, this Messiah, go for those things which are eternal, which those things that are significant and the son of man will give them to you. Now he's kind of alluding to this son of man, but there's this, still this confusion. Is he talking about himself or is there still one to come is it him? Is there another one? Is it John the Baptist? Is there Elijah? Is there another Messiah coming? He doesn't really say, but he's kind of alluding that maybe he would be the one that would give it to them. It goes on. On him, that is the son of man, God the father has placed his seal of approval. So this son of man that is coming, that will give you that which will bring eternal life, he is validated by God himself, the father. So they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Go to church every Sunday, tithe 10%, follow the, the laws of the Levitical code, make sure that you're disciplined, don't ever miss a quiet time, and be nice to old people. <laughs> That's not what he says. That's what we would say especially now that I'm one of the old people. But he says, no, no, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Now, again, he's kind of tipping his hand, kind of like alluding to the fact that maybe he is the son of man, that maybe he is the one that the father has sent, that maybe he is the one that has what they need for eternal life. 
And so they asked him, oh, okay, if it is you, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? I mean, if you're the son of God, because you're kind of leaning that way, and you want us to believe in you, what are you going to do? What will you do? To which I'm thinking, what do you mean, what will you do? He, he just fed 5,000 with little loaves and fish, and, and, and you experienced that. That's why you're there, and you've seen these things that have happened. That's why you're following him. What do you mean, what will you do? And then they decide they're going to give Jesus a little history lesson, a little Bible story from the Pentateuch. They're going to go back and give him a little Torah lesson just to remind them of some things so that maybe it will kind of force his hand a little bit. They said, okay, our forefathers, they ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they quote Exodus chapter 16. It's also found in Psalm 78 that he gave them, you know, this manna from heaven to eat. Now, some of you are very familiar with that whole exchange of the manna in, in the wilderness, but let me just remind you that while they were out in the wilderness, people were grumbling because they were hungry, and God gave them this bread every single day, and they had never seen anything like it. And so they said the first morning, manna, not because that was the title. That was a question. The word manna means, what is it? Which, if you ever sit down at your dinner table and you're not really sure what you're going to have, it's a cryptic way to say, manna, what is it? So that, that was a question. And it was this manna that would come from heaven like dew. It would fall overnight. And every morning they would go there. And six days a week, they were to pick up one day's supply for them to eat. On Friday, it was a little different. They could pick up two days supply so they didn't have to work on the Sabbath. But they would pick up one day. And every morning, it was there. For 40 years, every morning, they would go out, they would scoop it up, they would have their food for the day. The interesting thing about manna is that it was given from heaven. They didn't have to plow the ground. They didn't have to till the soil. They didn't have to plant the seed. They didn't have to water the seeds. They didn't have to, to tend to the garden. They didn't have to harvest it. They didn't have to crush it or to knead it. into. It was just a gift. It was given. There was no work involved for them except to just receive this gift. So when they throw this out, this little history lesson, this little Torah study for Jesus, they're kind of throwing down a little bit, a little bit of a comparison, a little contrast and comparison. Hey, Moses, Moses was the guy. Now, Jesus, what are you? I mean, Moses brought us bread from heaven. And yeah, you did that whole feeding 5,000, but that was barley loaves, little rolls from earth, little difference there. Moses did this for 40 years. Jesus, you pulled through for one afternoon. Moses provided for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people for 40 years. And Jesus, while it was pretty impressive, 5,000 men plus women and children, it was no hundreds of thousands of people for 40 years. Is that all you got? Not a bad start, but is that it? I mean, Moses has done something far greater than anything you've done. So why should we trust you. And in addition to that, there was a rabbinical teaching, not from scripture, but the rabbis would teach that someday when the son of man, the Messiah came, that he would be like a second Moses. He would be like another redeemer. He would be like another deliverer. And they taught that when Messiah came, that the manna would come back. 
that every morning they would have this from heaven yet again. And so there might even be, so you're talking about the Son of Man, the Messiah, so tomorrow morning, do we get to just scoop it up? Is it going to come back? Well, Jesus answers, verse 32, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, there it is, amen, amen, verily, verily, truly, truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has, look at the tense, given you, past tense, given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who, present tense, gives you the true bread from heaven. So Jesus says, you want to compare and contrast? All right, let's go after it. First of all, it wasn't Moses. You think Moses did that? It wasn't Moses. It was my heavenly father. And Moses, yeah, he, that, that happened. But that was then. And that was done. That was 40 years. This is now. And it's present tense. And it's ongoing. And yeah, with Moses, there was, there was manna to which you asked, what is it? You didn't even know what it was. But I'm telling you, we've got the true bread. And this true bread is not a what is it. It's not a what at all. This true bread is a who. He goes on, he says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, th th these are the kind of fun things that I, that I do in my office. I'm like, oh, I gotta share this. And have you like, who cares? Look at this. They're saying, hey, manna came down from heaven. That was wonderful. And, and he says, um, yes, but this true bread, he comes down from heaven as well. He comes from the Father. This manna, what is it? What is it? And there's a passage where Jesus calms the storm and the disciples say, who is this? Who is this? What kind of man is this? And he throws one more down. That manna that you guys think was so great. Yeah, it was for Israel. But this true bread, he is for the world. Far better. Far more. Now, I want to push pause on our story in John chapter 6. We'll come back to this. But I want to chase one little rabbit trail on this one. This is what I love about this. is because what you see here is all of these references to the Old Testament, to the story. So many of us who were raised in church, we can get into this idea that the Old Testament had a lot of cool stories that we heard in Sunday school or VBS or Awanas or whatever it might have been. We hear these cool stories about these Bible heroes and they all kind of stand alone, these silos of stories throughout the Old Testament. And while they are great stories with great lessons and great heroes, they are not stories. There is one story, and all of these chapters point to a greater conclusion of the one story. All of the stories throughout the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus. So even when they were talking about the manna, and, and that's all pointing to Jesus, when he feeds the 5,000, they're even pointing back to the Old Testament. Surely he is the prophet that was to come. They're pointing back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. They know this very well. Deuteronomy 18 says this, God says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. They knew this. They had been waiting for this. They're wondering. So the Old Testament is gonna find its fulfillment. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount? 
I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. All of those will be fulfilled in me. And the day of the resurrection, in that afternoon, that evening, he's walking on the road to Emmaus with two of the disciples. And, two, and, they, and they get to this point, and this is what it says in Luke chapter 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I and mean, what, what a great dinner that must have been. When Jesus says, hey, you remember this story? Let me tell you how that's fulfilled in me. Hey, you remember this section? Let me tell you, that was pointing to me. But all of this was pointing to him. It would all be fulfilled in him. You just see this over and over again. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. This is why when you begin to understand, and you have to be a little careful because you don't want to read Jesus into something that's not there. But when you begin to see this foreshadowing of Jesus, when you begin to see these types of Jesus, suddenly now the Old Testament becomes filled with life because it's all fulfilled. I just spit. I'm glad no one's sitting right here. I, see, I'm all, I'm all lathered up about this. The Old Testament just becomes alive as it points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. This might be a horrible illustration, but my wife and I went to see the latest Indiana Jones movie. I've got to tell you, in the series, the very first one, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, we own that on VHS. Some of you don't know what that is. Go to a museum. We owned that on a VHS, and my brother and I watched that movie over and over and over. Really, if you took my life, the, the, whole, the whole of my life, the two movies I've probably watched more than any others are Raiders of the Lost Ark and Dumb and Dumber. I can quote both of them all the way straight through. Well, it's interesting watching this latest, and I think last, of the Raiders of the Ark. There are so many nods, if you've seen it, and I'm not spoiling anything, so many nods to the very first one. The Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I'm sitting there with my wife who did not watch Raiders over and over again, can quote it all. And, and, and I'm seeing things that she's not seeing, not because she's clueless, just because she didn't watch the Raiders like I did. Okay, I tell you that not so you go see a movie, but because when you understand the Old Testament and then you start reading the New Testament, you start going, oh yes. Oh, that's a nod to that. Oh, that's referencing that. So when they're talking about manna and all that, they're saying, you know, the Old Testament. Okay, one more. And then I promise we'll get back to, to, to our story here. But they keep talking about Moses and the manna. And I don't know if John did this intentionally, but when he starts John chapter six, he just gives these little, these little winks, these little nods to Moses. Okay, let's look at this real quick and then we'll get back. John chapter six, verse one. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side a far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. Do you know anyone else who may have crossed over a sea? Hmm, Moses did that. Okay, and then it goes on, it says, and a great crowd of people followed him. Well, now wait a second, when Moses crossed the Red Sea, there was a great crowd of people that followed him as well because they, had, they saw the miraculous signs that, that he had performed on the sick the reason they were following Moses was because of the 10 plagues and those signs that they had seen. Then Jesus went on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. Whoa, 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 whoa. Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he took the 70 elders with him. And this was the Jewish Passover feast was near the Passover. That's all about Exodus. Do, do you see it there? Okay, let's get back to the story. All right. I just find that so fascinating. Wake someone up and let's get back to the sermon. Okay, so Jesus is here and he's talking about this, this bread that came down from heaven. It's not a what, it's a, it's, a, it's a who. 
It's, it's himself. So their response, John 6.34, back to the sermon. Their response, 6.34, sir, they said. Now, sir is a title of respect, but it's not a title of worship. He's maybe claiming to be the son of man. They're not buying it yet. We'll respect you as a teacher, sir. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread, this bread you speak of, this bread that is he who came, this bread that the son of man, give us this bread. Now we can give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, they, they believe what Jesus was saying. They said, okay, we're in, give it to us. But I think the reality is they're still testing them on this. If you say these things, you better be able to deliver. Put up or shut up, Jesus. Because we've been taught that when the Messiah comes, the manna will return. And what you did with the 5,000, that was okay, but it's not like what Moses did. I think what Jesus wants them to understand is this. Greater than Moses and greater than manna, I am. I am. Jesus is far greater than Moses. Yeah, the manna was amazing. And the feeding of the 5,000, that was amazing. But there's the I am. And while he's been alluding to this son of man and this bread that's from heaven and all of that, he hasn't been really clear. And now he's getting ready to make sure there is no question, no doubt whatsoever. And this is where we get to our first ego imi statement. In John chapter 6, verse 35 he wants to unveil the truth. Verse 35, then Jesus declared, and he pulls the veil back, I am the bread of life. I, this what, this who, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Oh, the true bread it's not manna, it's not what is it, it's who is it. And the answer to that is me. That thing that happened in Exodus, that manna, that, that was good. But that was an imperfect picture. That, that was on the surface. Superficially, it met a need for 40 years. But what the Israelites did not recognize, they did not know, is while that was feeding them day after day, there was an underlying deeper message that it was pointing to something that would be even greater, something that would be more significant, something that would be eternal, someone that would come from heaven that would bring eternal life. All of that manna was just a foreshadowing, a glimpse of who I am. And I'm far greater than all of that. Verse 41 at this, the Jews began to grumble. Those of you who know Exodus know this is, Ex this is Exodus 2.0. <laughs> so they were grumbling all the time. We're hungry. He gives them manna. We're thirsty. He gives them water. We want meat. He gives them quail. They're grumbling all the time. It's happening again. I'll give you the bread from heaven. And they grumbled because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And Jesus is revealing his origin He's not from Bethlehem. He's not from Nazareth. He's from the Father. He's from heaven. He's been given. And they push back. 
we know Joseph, we know Mary. How, how could he say these things? Verse 47, I tell you the truth. Amen, he says. Verily, verily, I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. And he says this again. I am the bread of life. Yeah, your, your father, forefathers ate the manna in the desert. And they died. But here, here, Here is the bread that came down from the he- from, comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. He said, I am the bread of life. And I am bread with no expiration. The, the manna, 40 years, yes. But it stopped. When they went into the promised land, Joshua chapter 5, verse 12, when they ate of the provisions of the new land, the manna stopped that day. I'm the one who gives eternal life. The manna, it was good, but they could only pick up one day's worth. It had a shelf life of one day. If you picked up more than that, it wasn't just you have stale day old manna. No, no, no. The next day, if you tried to hoard it, it was filled with maggots and the stench was horrific. Had a shelf life of one day. We're talking about eternity here. And your forefathers, they ate it. But you know what? They still died. I'm the bread that will bring eternal life. See, there's really no comparison at all. And so he says it yet again, but he puts a twist on it in verse 51. I am the living bread, the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. I am the bread, he says, that not only sustains life, but imparts life. Not just enough to feed you for a day. Not just enough to give you strength for the afternoon. Not just enough to see you through your days here on this earth, but to impart eternal life. Don't settle for that which is just physical. That's what he keeps coming back to. There's something far more significant, something far deeper, something far more satisfying. And maybe he's thinking about the words from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, where he says, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Not just your stomach satisfied for a few hours, but your soul. You know, even when the manna was given, though they didn't pick up on it, it was pointing to something, someone that would be even greater. Again, out of Deuteronomy chapter eight this time, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, But on every word, every word, every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That there's more than just the physical bread. Something far deeper. Back to 51. 
I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, which was shocking. But then he's getting ready to throw down the phrase that will be the tipping point for them that they'll say, no more, this is too far. For us, we understand it because we're 2,000 years on this side of the cross. They had no clue what he was talking about when he said this, this bread, this bread that I am, this bread that I'm talking about, this bread that's from heaven, this bread is my flesh. Wait, what? Weird. Your flesh, the Levitical law frowns on cannibalism. This is your, your flesh. And then he says, which I will give for the life of the world. Now we don't have time, but you go on. It, it gets even stranger when he says, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood. And they're going, I'm out. That's it. I mean, amazing, but too far. And that's when it says, from that time on, many of his disciples no longer followed him. Interesting little side note. He turns to the 12 who are still there, and he says to them, what about you guys? You going to leave too? <laughs> I like Peter's response. Where would we go? <laughs> it's not like, yeah, we're with you to the end. He's like, we don't have anywhere else to go. And... I guess you have the words of life, so we're here. And what you see is that he's talking about his body being given for the life of the world. Fast forward one year. One year later, he's in the upper room celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And I've got to believe that night he's washed their feet. That was an odd thing. I believe that when they're going through the Passover, which looked back to their history, I've got to believe that Jesus keeps dropping hints all the way through the Seder meal. Yeah, the Passover, we know what that was about, but do you know what it was really about? The sacrificial lamb, yeah, we know what happened, but you know what that was really pointing to? All these things, I'm wondering if he does all that. And then at the end of the meal, we read this in Matthew chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And for 2000 years, the followers of Jesus have been doing this. This picture, this physical reminder of the spiritual reality, this metaphor, this symbolism of of Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was shed. And, and we're going to do that together today here in just for a few, in a few minutes. We'll be taking communion together. But before we get to that point, let me go back to something that I find really beautiful. You remember the manna. The manna that they didn't have to plow the ground for. Till the soil. Plant the seed. Water it. Tend the garden harvested. They didn't have to do anything. It was a gift that was given to them. All they had to do was receive that gift. And earlier in John 6, when Jesus says, work for food that will bring eternal life, the Son of Man will give it to you. Remember their response? Let's go back to that, verse 20, 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answers them, but he doesn't answer that question. 
Jesus answered, the work of God, not what you're doing, not what you're striving and toiling after, not what your efforts would do. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Like Jesus is saying, I am bread without work. It's called grace. It's by grace that we are saved, not by works. It's the gift of God and not from us. Not by works so that no one can boast. Don't you see, even the manna was a beautiful picture of the grace-filled salvation life that Jesus would come and give. And here's the truth. I don't know where you are spiritually. Many of you, I do, but most of you, maybe I don't. And I don't know why you're here or watching. But maybe... Maybe you've never received the bread of life. Maybe you've got all kinds of reasons or questions. But what if today, what if today you said, Jesus, I want you, the living bread in my life. See, our whole goal and purpose, like John the Baptist, is to point people to Jesus that we would all find and follow Jesus. And you can say, well, I haven't done this or I can't do this. It's a gift. It's a bread that does not require work. You can't earn it. You will never deserve it. It's just given to you. So maybe today you receive that gift. One more verse, verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds, feeds, the tense there, feeds on this bread will live forever. What if this feeds, this is how we live in this grace of the bread, the living bread, the bread of life. Maybe when Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's to feed on Jesus yet again. And what if, what if the rabbinical teaching was true all along? That when the Messiah came, the manna would begin again. But it wouldn't be a what. It would be a who. That every day his mercies are new. Every morning he waits. And every day we feed on the bread of life.